Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space. I'm Carter Laren. Please don't forget to uh, go like, share, and subscribe. You can find us at unsafespace.com. It's the best way to get all of our content. Um, you can find us on YouTube, library, medium, but unsafespace.com is the way, the way, to, the way to go because um, we can't get kicked off of that platform. So what you're about to watch is a conversation that I recently had with Mark Pellegrino. It started out, it was going to just be a phone call. I reached out to him because I wanted to, I was thinking about some things. Personally, I wanted to work through them. I thought he would be a good person to talk to about them. And then we decided, well, other people might want to hear this conversation. So we turned it into uh, a video. Um, for those of you who don't know who Mark is, he is an actor and producer. He's most recently known for his work as Lucifer on Supernatural, which will be funny when I tell you the nature of our conversation. Uh, you may also recognize him from other hit shows as Dexter, Lost, Being Human, 13 Reasons Why, or from the movies that he's been in, including uh, The Big Lebowski, National Treasure, and The Number 23. Now, none of those are the reasons that I wanted to talk to him. Uh, the reason I wanted to talk to him is that he is one of the smartest people that I know. He's an objectivist, and he's the co-founder of the American Capitalist Party. And the nature of the conversation I wanted to have was about um, pushing for individualism and capitalism, uh, properly defined, and how atheists and Christians are or are not aligned in that battle. There's a lot of alignment right now around fighting social justice, but I'm kind of looking for the, the longer-term alignment fighting for individualism and trying to create uh, an individualist ethic in society that eventually can can hopefully bring us some smaller smaller government, more, more capitalism. So that was the conversation I wanted to have with him, and it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. So if you want to follow Mark uh, on Twitter, it's Mark R. Pellegrino, and on Instagram, it's Mark Ross Pelly. I'll put both of those handles in the links below in the show notes. But here's the conversation. Enjoy. All right, well, th thanks, Mark, for agreeing to talk to me about this and have a convo. Sure, no um, problem. So I hope, uh, I, can, me... I hope I can be of service. <laughs> or maybe I can't. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you'll How altruistic of you. <laughs> No, it helps me too. It helps me too. Um, so let me just give you a little bit of background on my motivation here and what I'm thinking. And, and what I want to really ask you about is it's something I've been struggling with, which is exploring the relationship between um, rational atheists and Christian conservatism and Christians. And like, is there an allyship there? And, and more explicitly, like, what's the extent of that allyship? And what are there should be boundaries on that? Should there be boundaries there? Um, and and let me let me tell you a little bit more personal motivation. I was a evangelical atheist for quite a while. Like I and what I mean by that is I, it was very important for me to run around convincing people that God didn't exist, and that was that was super important. And I think part of it was because I grew up very religious, and um, once I became an objectivist, I kind of saw the altruist ethic as as evil, which I still believe. And wanted to go out and proselytize, uh, replacing it with something else. And step one, I guess, is convincing people that God doesn't exist. Um, but since then, I've kind of 
become much more tolerant of religion. I have uh, religious friends, obviously Carrie, whom I do unsafe space stuff with is, is religious. And more specifically, one of my really close friends who was an objectivist 20 years ago and is like one of the most rational and smartest people I know, or at least has been for, has been the most one of the most rational people I've known for a long time. Um, she very recently decided that she wanted to be Christian, but had trouble believing in God because it was a ridiculous concept. And I kind of asked her about the motivations for it. And uh, I think there's definitely some emotional motivation and some other stuff, but she's now been kind of going to church. And just today she texted me, well, whatever the truth is, it's clearly better to believe in a sky God than a human God, which I know you and I would agree is a false dichotomy, but um, there's kind of this motivation there. I think as society is falling apart and there's just a lot of, like, if you look at demons and evil and Satan and God as metaphors, I can see why a lot of people latch on to that because there's a lot to not understand necessarily about the nature of what's happening and the forces at play here, which I think are just philosophical and intellectual, but, and psychological. Um, so anyway, I'm kind of struggling with this because I do have these moments where <laughs> Christian friends of mine or Christians who watch the show or whatever will make an, will say something. And I have that like, nails on a chalkboard moment where I just kind of cringe and I'm like, ah, should I be like arguing with them about this? How much are they actually allies on social justice? Are you know, the fight against social justice or the fight for capitalism more specifically? Um, so that's kind of my motivation. I'll just leave it there and then we can keep going. But let me throw that out and see what how that sits with you. Well, first of all, I think your friend who's who's rediscovered religion should would be an interesting person to bring into this conversation. I think that religion does offer things that philosophy doesn't. And the things that it offers makes it more interesting to people. I don't want to say on the level of entertainment, but certainly on the level of emotional engagement, right? It offers a, yep. a, a transformative experience, a, a sense of transcendency. It, you're, you're worshiping in in a community of other people uh you're mixing truth with narrative and narrative with feeling and that's a much better delivery device for information and while at the same time having a integrated view of his existence which is what philosophy good philosophy that is um can give you and so in a sense you're you're satisfying all of the all of the requirements of a philosophy and adding entertainment value to it um, and camaraderie and an immediate sense of that the camaraderie is morally meaningful. Uh, and that does stuff to us humans. I mean, maybe an intellectual like Jonah Goldberg would say that those are the old parts of our humanity and that, that part of our evolutionary development that is at war with this modern development of individualism it's it's there he, he would say it's a part of our nature and really difficult to extract from it and he thinks the other stuff is an artifice and when i hear things like this it makes me feel sort of the same way even though i disagree um so i think that's that's part of the attraction hmm. for people with respect to religion they need answers, as philosophy, as Rand said. They need philosophy, and religion supplies entertainment plus philosophy. Um, and I also think that, okay. um, as far as the second part of that goes, because you, you sort of asked whether or not these folks can be allies with us 
particularly in defense of capitalism, I think some of the recent videos with Lauren Southern and um, even many of these indictments against free markets that, you know, Bill O'Reilly and, and Tucker Carlson engage in more often than not. Uh, I think the recent Prager University diatribes against the Enlightenment and disdain for individualism show that when, when push comes to shove, they're not really our allies. Now, there, there's a temporary alliance you can make, but I think that's it's more that's a more there's a, such a permanent moral rift that it 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 winds up being a a, a deep compromise. I think if you if you temporarily align yourself with folks on that side of the aisle, I've I've been urged to do that all the time and consistently refuse. And videos like uh, Lauren Southern's. Uh, uh, attack of, of capitalism for all the reasons any good Marxist would attack it um, right. are, are, are evidence of that. See, the thing that Marx does that's very similar to religion is he provides narrative. There's a romanticism to Marxism that is attractive to people. There's a romanticism to religion that's attractive to people. And I think Rand tried to achieve that in her literature, but either has not had the time for it to disseminate enough into our cultures that it takes purchase, or uh, maybe it's just the type of heroism that people can't understand or relate to yet, so they don't get the romantic narrative. Yeah, I mean, it's... So one of the things that you brought up, which I think is interesting, is the community, and something that I always kind of envied about the religious community was that they could go to a church every Sunday and be around like philosophically like-minded people. Um, I hesitate to call religion philosophy, so maybe we disagree on that a little bit, but like I, they're at least uh, ethically aligned um, people that they're around. Um, and that sense of community is important, and it's not something that I see really anyone creating uh, on the you know, rational atheist perspective. I guess the new atheists try, but a lot of them are humanists. They're, the, 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 the atheist movements have been about anti-religion, not for anything in particular. So it would right. fall to the objectivist community, I think, to do something like that. Because um, they're the only community I know who has a positive view that's entwined with atheism rather than just, uh, you know, tearing down religion and not caring what you replace it with. Right now, um, no, I would say religion is is a type of philosophy. Like Rand said, it was a primitive philosophy, for the reason that it, it pretty much covers all the schools of philosophy. It's an integrated view of existence, and and when people are going there, not just because people hold the same values in certain respects, they go there because most of the people in the church hold the same values in every respect: metaphysically, ethically, um, um, socially, politically. They're all very much aligned. Um, so now, now th there are communities that are now starting to prop up thanks to technology, thanks to the technology that the right, oddly enough, wants to crush. Um, it is creating, it's seeding the ground very fertilely for objectivists to spread the word. Clubhouse is a very fertile place. Uh, the internet is a very fertile place now for creative content from objectivists. 
It's, you know, I mean, when you think back to, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when you would get an objectivist conference every year and a few hundred people would show up to the present day where you have on any given day, you're on Brook on, you have the new ideal with anyone from Greg Salimary on Cargate, uh, Ben Baer, Aaron Smith, philosophers and fellows at the Ayn Rand Institute producing content every day. You have Craig Biddle, who's just what was just recently interviewed by Dennis Prager. Uh, oh, was he? he? I love yes. Craig Biddle. He's awesome. Okay. He's great. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. He's out there. And of course, he's got the objective standard, which I promote at every opportunity. There's Ayn Rand centers of the yin yang sprouting up all over the world. And I do a podcast twice a week for the Ayn Rand Center UK, which is slowly but surely gaining ground. I mean, it's a spontaneous show, so it's not as deep as Euron's show. You know, he researches these things out. He'll, he'll talk a narrative and then give the objectivist point of view, whereas we're just a bunch of, you know, um, normal folks sort of hashing out an issue out loud, sort of like we are here. Uh, but that's not the only place. There's Ayn Rand centers in Poland and Ayn Rand centers all over Europe. Uh, that are becoming Israel is another big one. They're, they're becoming a real thing. And there's libertarian podcasts, too, uh, and some conservative uh, outlets like Prager University, where objectivists have actually gone and done pieces on those shows, been interviewed by those people. So um, while we don't have we don't have the type of community that's conducive to this celebration, which is, is what people are doing in religion, um, we're getting the community. And I think it's a matter of time before we figure out a way to make it a celebration in the sense that um, in the sense of a, I don't want to say religion, because to me that defeats the purpose of objectivism, but lends it that transcendent quality that people can touch and feel and taste and, 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 and can be the sort of sugar that you know, tempts them to take a taste of objectivism, so to speak. Well, I mean, there is definitely a human, and I don't, I don't think this is going to go away anytime soon. I think it's probably built into our DNA. There is a human in-group preference thing that, like, we do want to have. We're wired to like. It's hard to have deep relationships with more than a couple hundred people, like you know, like actual relationships. Um, and there definitely is a in-group, out-group preference kind of trigger that happens, which makes sense evolutionarily. I think it's, you know, a healthy way that that outlet has occurred has been sports groups, right? Sports teams can, you can kind of feel that without really the weight of it mattering very much. But, yeah. um, but I guess, you know, the, the community aspect is something that, um, yeah, I, I I never really feel that with the object. Maybe that's just my issue. But, you know, the conferences are about, you know, you go and you you listen to some lectures and you learn and you hang out with some people. But um, they always feel like strangers. And maybe that's just because it's not every week. Right. It's not regular. It's like once a year. And maybe you have like a few people that, you know, that you see regularly and they're not strangers. But um Maybe it's just because it's not like small communities where you have a local church and you see people out and about and you see them every week and it's the same people and maybe, you know, you get to know them. Um, so, okay, let me 
let's start with some points of agreement because I want to make sure that we are in agreement on a few things before I ask a few more questions with you uh, because we might not be. I think we are. Uh, I think we're in agreement that altruist ethics are fundamentally incompatible with capitalism. Um, yes. And and okay. And and just to be clear for the audience. I'm defining capitalism as basically nothing more than a system that recognizes individual rights and their corollaries like rights, private property, right? So it's a nice, easy definition. I'm trying to make it just easy, right? Okay, so we agree with that. Um, and I think we agree that the underlying I think, ethics- I think, But I think its relationship to altruism should be stated in that capitalism uh, capitalism is about the the you being the beneficiary of your own effort altruism is about the someone else being the beneficiary of your effort right yeah capitalism is explicitly self-ownership whereas altruism is ownership i wouldn't even call it i wouldn't even see it i wouldn't even call it ownership i mean ownership okay uh, but but certainly sovereignty sovereignty of the individual sovereignty is a better word sure yeah. yeah yeah okay um and and i think and maybe maybe i'm not actually even sure about this i would have said in the past altruist ethics are the ethics of christianity um and i think that's mostly correct however i do see a number of christians arguing for individual rights which doesn't seem to match altruist ethics so to speak although i can't tell if they're just carving that out for politically individual rights are important and then in their private life they think altruist ethics are important that i can't tell i don't know if you have any thoughts about i i think both that <clears throat> both are in the religion so i mean it's no surprise that a religion has incompatible elements within it and states paradoxical um, truths, but they do. I mean, I mean, I do think on the one hand, Jesus was sort of instrumental in separating the individual from an institution and, and promoting the importance of the individual. Um, How? His it, by preaching a personal relationship with God, he was he was, in, in a sense, at war with the religious establishment, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and made the claim that, look, this temple with these laws of these men um, are not God. And your, and your relationship with God doesn't take place in that temple. It takes place within you. And the kingdom of heaven was within you. Now, there may have been practical reasons for him to say that, given the tenor of the times and the relationship between the Jewish people and, and the Romans. Nonetheless, he switched, he, he switched the relationship of the individual and God as something separate with intermediaries to something very intimate and personal. Um, now, on the other hand, the whole story of his sacrifice is altruistic in the sense that, and, and many of the other messages within the Bible itself are also altruistic. Um, I mean, if you think of the idea of the sacrifice of Christ as the most virtuous man, the ideal man being sacrificed for the least virtuous. Um, so That's that abhorrent. I find that, uh, of course, abhorrent. Um, um, of course, that and but that is a that is a moral theme that I think runs through tons of heroic, quote unquote, narratives in Western civilization that reinforces the altruist ethic. So yeah, on the one hand, it's about giving up all of your resources to other people. It's about 
letting your enemies slap you around. It's about it's about another world. Um, it's about it's not about living here. It's about building up treasure in heaven. And you do that by giving things away here and by not caring too much about the material world on the one hand. <clears throat> and on the other hand, there is this sort of aesthetic value that you as an individual are very important to God. So both exist in my Fair. view. That, that makes sense. Um, it also explains why we see, you know, if I look at Christianity, it's clear that Christianity doesn't lead to capitalism in any way. Like throughout history, we've had lots of Christianity, not a lot of capitalism. And you do have groups even today that can cherry pick and say, well, we're Christians who believe in very small government that, you know, protects property rights and they'll cite why that is. And on the other hand, you have Christians who are socialists and cite reasons for that. So. And, and I think um, the early communities in America that attempted a, a form of socialism or coercive, I mean, in Massachusetts Bay, I think they attempted a form of Christian community that we would call socialism and it nearly killed them. And the same type yep. of thing happened in, uh, I think, uh, uh, Jamestown, uh, where there was a sort of institutionalization of the of the people on the ground and attempt an attempt to sort of treat them as a communal body and coerce them to work uh, and or coerce the, the natives to work for them. None of that worked. Uh, all, what really worked was parcel, parceling out land and making each person responsible for his own well-being. And once that once that started happening, uh, the, the colony began to prosper. Yeah. So there, there were yep. attempts. There were attempts to bring, at least in especially in Massachusetts Bay, attempts to bring about the Christian ideal. And I think people, I think uh, Puritans, uh, Calvinists in England looked to America as the shining city on the hill back back then. As you know, the Puritans in Massachusetts Bay were were creating a paradise. Of course, we know that's very far from the truth. Right. Yeah, no, I think they were, I mean, I would almost call them communist without the official label, but some of the experiments in early American settlements were, you know, very but, much what we would call communism. But now. in keeping with the Christian paradoxes, I think also there's a reliance on hard work community. Uh, there are certain values mixed into the Protestant work ethic that do lend itself to um, a capitalistic type of doing business, but I don't, I, I don't think it's natural. Christian isn't, capitalism is, isn't a natural outgrowth of Christianity. Marxism is more of a natural outgrowth of Christianity. Right. Well, they, yeah, they would probably argue that because Marx was an atheist and, and Engels was an atheist that it's not, but I, yeah, I agree with you. So I, all right, another point, uh, just to make sure we agree, I, conservatives have failed to defend capitalism because they can't. Right. They're incapable of providing a moral defense of it because they've embraced a, at the very least, pseudo-Christian altruist ethic. Right. They not even, never not even pseudo-Christian. I mean, full Fair. on. Okay. Full on. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. But the, uh, it's, the, it's the left that's embraced a, a pseudo-Christian ethic because it's Christian ethics is just secularized. And they substitute, okay. you know, God with society and and need for love and 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 substitute values, but it's it's all the same. And and the the right agrees, so they can't really fight what they agree with. 
Right. Which that Lauren Southern video that you mentioned is like the, one of the best examples recently I've seen of that. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, torturous. Yeah. Uh, another thing is uh, that I would say is just as a point of agreement to start here is that most atheists that at least I think this is statistically true. I'm almost positive of this. Most atheists have substituted the state for God, and they've reasoned from false premises to come to this uh, manifestation of collectivism as the ideal, um, some form of Marxism or some form of mixed economy socialism, if they're good. Um, and if they're worse, they get to they get directly to Marxism. So atheists as a whole aren't actually very helpful as, as a category of, of people aren't very helpful in defending Western civilization at all, because most of them actually want to tear it down. Yeah, it seems like many secular humanists have have adopted altruism as the moral ideal. And they and they have assumed that society is the means or government is the means by which society realizes that ideal. Um, and so yeah, they they do what the Christians do and what the and what the, the conservative Republicans do uh, to us in the name of the yeah world. no I think I think they often just the humanists and is, it, humanists especially their argument basically boils down to like public good which is an ill-defined messy term which they can then just use statistics to try and argue like stats equal ethics well fifty one percent of the people equals better than forty nine percent which is like oh okay. Um, yeah, they aggregate really individuals out of existence. Yeah, they they don't yeah. they don't know flesh and blood human beings. They know statistics. Yeah. Um, and okay. And the last point of I think we're in agreement is um, the authoritarian left right now, which we sometimes call the social justice left or you know the the, the woke people. Um, they're a pretty existential threat to individualist ideas that the U.S. was founded on. Like they're, it's a pretty real existential threat, at least in my view. I don't know. How, what you think about that, but yep. Okay. I agree. All right. So I look back and I see some approaches that people take here. I see James Lindsay, who I know is an objectivist, but does argue for objective truth and reason has his epistemology. So like, that's a good start, right? I, I think he probably has some humanist ethics. I'm not totally sure. Uh, but you know, you see people like James Lindsay who do an excellent job of fighting, uh, social justice ideology. Um, push for objective truth and reason as the means to obtain uh, truth. And, you know, he does come under fire, though, for aligning himself with Christians quite a lot, like um, Michael O'Fallon. Um, and, and he gets flack for that. Uh, but, but he's very effective. And he's, he's an ally. You know, I look, I look at James Lindsay and I say, well, thank, not to be ironic, but thank God James Lindsay's got a Twitter account, right? Like, this, it's great. What he's what he's doing in terms of his arguments that he's making. Yeah, I agree too. And, and, and he's but he's also very intensely into the philosophy of religion. I mean, he's definitely a person to have on a show like this to discuss religion, ethics, and reason together because yep. that's sort of his bag. Yeah, yeah. And another one that I that comes to mind is who's actually someone who's spoken at ARI is Jordan Peterson, who uh -huh. I view as kind of a Pascalian. Christian, right? He's, if you ask him if sure. he believes, he says yes. But if you ask him if he believes that God exists, he says, well, no, but I'm afraid he does. 
right? He's like, he's kind of yeah. like, I'm a Christian. I don't believe in God, but I'm afraid he does. So therefore I'm a Christian. It's kind of like, uh, okay. Um, but then at the other extreme, I think, you know, I don't want to use your own as a prime example because I don't watch a lot of your own recently, but his Lauren Southern takedown the other day made me think of this. And I've seen this from uh, objectivists generally. He, he makes kind of a strong argument about not compromising with what he's calling conservatives, um, not comp compromising with conservatives. And, and I think he would say Christians as well. I've seen a lot of anti, you know, Christian I won't call it rhetoric, but arguments from from objectivists and a lot of condescension from objectivists about religion. And um, it's kind of the old case of the the rift in the objectivist movement back in the David Kelly days of you shouldn't lend credibility to this particular group by speaking with them and allying yourself with them because ultimately that undermines the goals. And so I think the argument would be, well, look, speaking, speaking with them and allying yourself with them are different things. I, right. Fair. I mean, I think you can speak with them to expose the, 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 the misses in their ideas, you, I, but you definitely shouldn't ally the, yourself with them. I think all ideas should be on the table in an open society, but don't be its ally if it's bad. Well, so that, so this brings me to the kind of <laughs> ally question, which is like, well, what is it like? Okay, if if I'm, or let's just take James Lindsay because he's doing he's doing this. He's fighting woke ideology mm -hmm. side by side with Christians, but he's not really arguing with Christians about the existence of God or or trying to call them out on anything. And I think the reason for that is probably he doesn't think it's a high priority because there's a bigger beast to slay. Is that allyship? Is that is that is he undermining? Well, I mean, I think he's I think he's made an uh, a couple of errors anyway. I mean, uh, in, including his support for Trump. Um, I think what he's doing is he's looking around and seeing what opposition is out in the establishment and allying himself pragmatically with whatever opposition happens to be out there in the establishment. Um, I think in the long term, those kinds of alliances work against you because they they are riddled with their own internal inconsistencies, just like wokeism is. I mean, it's literally you need one voice like James Lindsay's, which I think is extremely important out there in the world because he knows the scholarship inside and out. So they can't fool him. They can't they can't play rhetorical games with him. Uh, he exposes them all. And that's so freaking important to expose these people to the light of day. And doing that, you know, they have very little epistemological strength. Um, whatever force they're gathering is is the result of force. It's the result of taking over institutions and imposing an atmosphere of fear on people. Um, but the ideas themselves are so chaotic and so contradictory that they will die if you just have open dialogue with it, <laughs> which is why they don't want to have it. But to ally yourself with the likes of a pragmatist punk like Trump, Trump, who is is da dangerous in his own way. I mean, he's he's on the he's the other side of the coin of the woke chaos. He's this he's the faux strongman, the uh, uh, the uh, malignant narcissist. Uh, and more, an ignorant, malignant narcissist um, 
who cares about his own stature and status more than he does about anything else. That's a dangerous alliance. And I could see why, like, Helen Pluckrose sort of went, whoops, you know, I'm not going there with you, even though we're allies intellectually. Um, I wouldn't be able to go there with him. I understand where he's coming from. Um, and I well, let me ask you about this. Let, let me ask you about this, because um, I don't disagree with what you've said about Trump. But I voted for Trump um, and I don't I actually never voted. I don't vote. I don't like voting. I don't like either of the sides. And I view the voting as kind of getting involved in an argument over who's going to point the gun at whom. And I don't I kind of don't want to be involved. I'd rather just make arguments about philosophy and culture and, you know, let people struggle over the gun. And I don't want to be culpable morally mm. for what happens if the person I vote for gets the gun. But the reason that I voted for Trump was um, precisely because of social justice. I viewed it as an existential threat. I see all the problems with Trump. Like, absolutely. I, I get them. But I didn't think that he really would have power to do much um, except push back against critical race theory and the kind of leftist elite authoritarianism that he, is pervasive he, in mainstream but media. But he did have power to do much. He's, a, he's almost destroyed the credibility of the Republican Party now as an opposition force. I mean, I'm OK with that, though, because I don't care about the I'm, Republican Party. I, well, I, I'm not because they're the only opposition okay. to the Democrats right now. Um, and they should have been taking a principled stand for individual rights. Instead, they took a stand for Trump, which is a very, very different thing. So in many respects, look, there, I mean, the good things that came out of this were that he uh, a lot of things that were hidden or before Trump were sort of theorized and statistically analyzed as being so became apparent to the stupidest person on plan on the planet. Yes. So, yes, now we know that the media is uh, is completely biased and they're not telling us the truth. Uh, and now we know that the, there is such a thing as the deep state and, you know, a bureaucratic administrative state that runs things and that the elected officials have more or less given their power to these folks um, who have tremendous, uh, tremendous power over our own everyday lives, and that that's a very bad thing. Uh, the exposure of all that is fine uh, and good, but Trump exposing it <laughs> didn't do much to derail it. It precipitated an event um, while the left still had control over all the levels, level, levers of power within the institutions. So the and created an overall sense of doubt, a crisis of confidence in all of our information and and uh, and in the government. And the left is unapologetically grabbing power as a result of the vacuum that's being left by Trump. And there's no Republican that I can think of, with the exception of, well, I don't think Justin Amash is a Republican now. He's he's principled and interesting, but he, does he have the balls and the charisma to fight these people? I don't know. I've never really seen him speak. Um, yeah. And you need somebody with balls and charisma. You need somebody with a charisma with the charisma of Trump, who's more articulate, uh, has a clearer sense. Well, I'm principled, <laughs> right? He's got to have principles, <laughs> but he's more more articulate and uh, and um, and better equipped to deal with what the left is going to throw at him because 
even though a lot look, I know lots of diehard Trump supporters who loved the things that Trump did, who loved the way he responded to the other tribe. But that's what it's become now. The political sphere has been reduced to tribes taking shots at each other. And nobody gives a fuck about anything else but killing the other side. And, and each side has a cartoon, cartoon version of what the other side is and doing and what they believe. And they, they magnify those cartoon uh, narratives across social media. And, uh, and we get this parody of a political system that we have today. Right. And I, I, think, <laughs> I think this may help clarify for you why i would vote for trump i don't i'm i'm trying to fight a long-term culture philosophical war and i don't care if it has short-term political consequences like i don't i don't care about the politics that happens maybe it was good like for me to have to have that presidency end and most of the population now realize that the mainstream media lies and there is such a thing as a deep state that's a win that i could not have possibly imagined culturally that like maybe it will bring things to a head maybe it will be harder maybe the left will do a power grab faster but the left look the left has been winning for a hundred years more than a hundred years the left has been steadily winning we're not going to stop them through voting the only way that we're going to stop them is by waking people up to the bad ideology and the fact that normal people now know what crt stands for is a is a win for me and i think that's trump's like i don't think he did it because he's brilliant but he gets credit for bringing it to uh, the public and, and, and highlighting it. Well, they brought it to the public um, and, and he, you know, and his presence certainly was like a, a warm cloth on a budding zit. It brought it to a head. But, yes, uh, <laughs> that's an excellent he, analogy. But not by any, anything more uh, than his presence, because he certainly didn't do it. Right. Intellectually. Now, now look, I, I, the I two, agree with you, by the way, that, that I'm not saying he did it intellectually. Right. This this last voting cycle and this voting cycle before that, I voted libertarian. You know, I held my nose and voted libertarian for Jorgensen and for Johnson, both of whom I thought were terrible candidates, but yes. were, were l- l- the least likely to hurt me. Uh, in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have voted at all. Um, and that would have been my protest. Well, I'm going to go back to that because I felt good about that for most of my life. Um, that's my protest is to demonstrate. And, and well, actually, this is another thing that, you know, you said earlier, like it's shaken the confidence in the political system. And, you know, not to be a cynic, but I look at that and say, good. I, we have too much confidence in the political system. We we idolize our leaders. We think that we're always going to get justice. We think that like the United States government has become this massive out of control behemoth that's ever growing. And I actually think we should not have confidence. One of the things I liked about Trump, people used to say, well, he, 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 he makes people, he, what does he, they say, he, I don't remember exact, the exact phrase, but the gist of it is that he, he dishonors the office of the presidency. He makes people like, you know, not, not, uh, he tarnishes the reputation of the office of the presidency. And honestly, my response to that is great, great. I don't want the office of the presidency to have a reputation that's positive because presidents suck. I mean, <laughs> the presidents that we've had for almost since the beginning, but not quite, have been horrible. Um, you know, I don't want people to look at 
FDR and say, well, he's a president or Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson and be like, well, he's the president. We should give him respect. I want them to look at the president and say, this is just another bozo that got himself elected. And what the hell do we need care what he has to say? And why should we give this guy so much power? And, you know, it, the only time I've seen the left question executive power was when Trump had it. Yeah, they only question executive power when the right has it, uh, then, <laughs> and they don't. But that's sort of the way it goes for both sides. I, 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 I think differently than you. One, one of my main problems with Trump was his lack of stature. And this was something that I felt the founding fathers felt deeply about and fought deeply about. You know, when they were coming up as a budding, uh, you know, um, nation, they were they were surrounded on all sides by European powers and concerned about their stature in the world. And, uh, you know, of course, Adams wanted to go very far in the direction of a sort of monarchical stature for the president. And um, Washington was able to straddle that line between republicanism and something uh, elevated in the eyes of the world to, so that the, the rest of the world would have to take you know, the office of the presidency seriously. So I agree that I think the, the president should be a highly elevated and respected human being. <clears throat> I think he, his, he should bring deep stature to the, to the role. Um, and the best way to do that is now is by empowering um, people. Ironically, though, you know, since our history books are written by predominantly people on the left, they categorize good presidents by the amount of activism, you know, right. legislative activism they engage in and by how much they do, you know. And uh, and so a president like Calvin Coolidge will fall under the radar, despite the fact that he's probably one of the cleanest, clearest thinkers and one of the most respectful towards the Constitution and its, its uh, bulwark against tyranny and probably almost any president before him with the possible ex exception of some of the founders, one or two of the I was going to say Washington is probably one of the best because although Washington he was elevated, is. he was also like extremely uninterested in wielding power. Yeah. Um, and he had just like a handful of staff. He had like, it, there was not much going on in the Washington. I think, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a script called uh, um, Lame Duck and it's, it's, uh, there's, there's, I don't want to, I can't tell you the plot, but um, I, I had to do research on Thomas Jefferson. And, and I believe that Thomas Jefferson's staff consisted of four people altogether, um, including <laughs> himself, uh, which he had to pay for out of his own pocket, I believe. I don't even think they, they got taxpayer Damn. dollars. Um, and, uh, and I think the office of the presidency has expanded to four so there are now 4,000 people that, that in some respects are the helpers to the president of the United States. 4,000 human beings. Well, and that doesn't even count all the executive and regulatory agencies over which the executive branch has control. Right. Right. That, that's just which the is office millions. of the presidency. That's just the <laughs> office of the presidency has 4,000 people. Yeah. It's crazy. So, I mean, I guess, I guess when we talk about this, I say, well, if we were in the United States 200 years ago, I would say, well, well, yes, we should have respect for the office of the presidency. And, and but I guess part of my cultural argument is 
to, to, to get people to wake up and say, hey, the US isn't what it was. The documents are awesome. The ideas are awesome. Its current instance is not awesome. And like, maybe we shouldn't treat a president as if he's Thomas Jefferson, because he's not. And he's not presiding over the United States that Thomas Jefferson presided over either. Um, so, you know, I, I guess we don't have to go down the Trump because I want to go back to the religion stuff. But like, that's that's where I'm coming from with Trump. And people get all upset and bent out of shape that, you know, Trump is a bad image. And, I, and you know, I kind of say, great. He's bad. Great. That's what I want people to think of the president. Yeah, but right. I, I, I understand your sensibility. I also understand my friend's sensibility who thinks he's just, you know, crapping on the establishment and they like that. Um, but it's not healthy. Yes, we should Fair. be wary. Yes, we should be uh, vigilant of our liberties. But people don't know what those are anymore. So, um, you know, and disrespecting yeah. the president and disrespecting the institutions is sort of feeding into the nihilist scheme of things, which is, look, they all suck, burn it down, burn it the fuck down. And that's not the case. We need reform, certainly. Um, we, need to, we need to take back some principles and then expand upon those the way they should have been expanded upon 200 years ago. Um, but to burn it down, no. And that's where not respecting the institution leads to. It leads to burning it down. And I don't want that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, uh, let's well, we'll we'll let's table this and go uh, go back to, to religion because I think I view I view a lot of politics as um, tactical rather than strategic decisions about uh, the direction of the country. Like, I want to go in the same direction. It's a tactical question about what I think works better, and you make it a strong case that it doesn't. And that's fine. Um, but let's go back to religion for a second. Um, okay. Because, because I still, re I'm, I still really haven't figured this out, and you know, we're not going to solve the Trump thing, and it doesn't matter because he's gone. Um, uh, I don't think he's gone, but oh well, <laughs> yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe he's not gone. I thought he was gone, but maybe he's not gone. Um, I did just see that the other day. Uh, anyway, I guess. Um, okay, let's talk about fighting the authoritarian left for a second. Um, there are Christians who say, "I they they won't say it in this way." I'm gonna I'm gonna put words in their mouth, but basically they're saying, "When I cherry pick the Bible, I get to individual rights, and therefore, um, I'm gonna use that against the social justice left and the authoritarian left, and I'm gonna fight them on on their collectivism." What's when you say you think it's bad to ally with them, what does it what does it mean to ally with them? Does it mean to make arguments with them, to not oppose them? Like, what does an ally look like? An ally, um, in 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 my perfect worldview, is somebody who has the indistinguishable values from you, and is fighting for the same establishment of those values as you. Do you think it's do you think that if you've got so you you individual rights are, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but individual rights are probably your starting point for political ideology, right? You've got metaphysics and epistemology and ethics on top yeah. of that and individual rights pops out of that. And that's where you start your political right. uh, 
right? So, well, there could be people with what, what you and I would say, bad metaphysics, bad epistemology, individual rights still pops out. Are they your allies? No. No, because all those cracks in their bad epistemology and bad metaphysics eventually affects rights. Uh, I mean, it's happening with Prager. It's happening with Ben Shapiro. It's ha- it, it's, it's, it has to. Look at them. Okay. Look, at, look at Prager, you know, talking shit about the Enlightenment now. And now the I didn't see that. What did, what did he say about the Enlightenment? Sorry. Not him so much. He brought, he brought a professor in to talk about how bad the Enlightenment was and that the source of all the problems that we're having today is individualism. Oh, okay, so this is, this, is, this is the result of a poor metaphysics uh, and a poor epistemology. What is the metaphysics? I don't know, some, some supernatural type of world that exists, that God is sort of the source of it and directs it. And uh, and that faith is the guide to knowing what it is God wants. And in the end, the values that matter are God's values and not there's nothing secular uh, about it. And individualism is the individual claiming that he can pursue values, know values, understand the universe it is, as it is, and pursue the appropriate values for his own life while not hurting others. They're, they're claiming that's fallacious. Because the okay. universe isn't set up that way. Buddy. All right. So let me uh, let me try and push back on something else. And I'm going to say this. Uh, I think I've seen, I know I've seen actually, uh, without naming names, I know I've seen objectivists and just, you know, well, I'll call them the objectivists, anyone in that objectivist circle. Um, I know I've seen this this attitude of what I would call strawmanning Christian traditions and dismissing them. And the and the reason I don't think tradition, by the way, just to be clear, tradition is not in a, like an argument, right? Like it's not <laughs> why should we do it? Because we always have. That's not an argument. And like that can be dismissed. I, I get that. Um, but there's that G.K. Chesterton quote about the fence. Do you know the quote I'm talking about? Yeah, or, but refre- refresh me. Um, here, wait, I think I can, I think I had it. I'll, I'll read it. Let's see. Read the whole thing. Okay. I just read it recently, actually. Here, I'm going to read It's a, it's a paragraph that's often reduced to like a sentence, but I like the paragraph. So I'm just going to read it. Uh, in the matter of reforming things as distinct from deforming them, there is one plain and simple principle, a principle which will probably be called a paradox. There exists in such a case, a certain institution or law, let us say for the sake of simplicity, a fence or gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this. Let us clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then when you've come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may, I may allow you to destroy it. Um, and the reason I'm thinking about that is, you know, as a... As an atheist, I, I do view Christianity as an evolved set of traditions that have survived successfully for some amount of time. And so when there, when there is a tradition that gets pushed back on, I want to understand, I, I want to not just dismiss it out of hand, but take the time to understand, like, why was it there? And does is there any value underneath of it? 
that maybe there's rational reason to make an argument for. And, and the one I'm going to pick on is um, there's this uh, your own actually I'll name him on this one. Your own actually characterized the conservative position on women as like, well, they just want women to get back in the kitchen. That's why they don't like all this. You know, they just they just want women back in the kitchen and they don't like women's rights. Um, and, and maybe there are some conservatives on the right who totally believe that. And so, sure. Um, but I think there's a nuance that's missing. And I'm going to say this as a guy who got married, had a child, got divorced with lots of advice from objectivist friends, by the way, who said it doesn't matter. You know, uh, two parent homes are irrelevant. And, uh, you know, don't, don't worry, you don't want to be, you know, you, if you're if you're not happy right now, that's not good. So, you know, now maybe that was bad objectivist advice. But my, my point is there are. Yes, it was. Sure, sure. Um, but there are um, there are reasons why, for example, um, we should hesitate to be uh, flippant with respect to raising children, um, having both parents work without one person, or at least full time, without being able to be around for what I mean, you know, my daughter's been around for a year because she's doing remote school like everyone because of the COVID thing. And, you know, man, I'm paying a lot more attention to what she's learning. And uh, some of it's really horrible. And like it's caused me to be more involved. And, you know, I Good. think, well, and my wife and I both work. Right. And I was, you know, I homeschooled her for a little while. So I'm not I've never been like totally checked out, but I've been paying a lot more attention. And some of it is just uh, her science in particular is not even science. It's just indoctrination. Uh, and, you know, my wife and I both work full time. We're both, you know, entrepreneurial types have always been entrepreneurial types. And so we're all like busy. We're busy. Um, and, you know, I think, well, Christianity would tell me to prioritize family time and paying attention to my child. And like, maybe they would say the woman should stay home. And maybe that doesn't have to be the case. Maybe the dad can stay home. But there's a truth under there, which is, Someone needs to spend time paying attention to how the child is being raised. You can't just not pay attention to that and cross your fingers and hope everything goes well. And I think, you know, when 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 the right and conservatives argue that uh, a lot of feminism has pushed women into the workforce, that's true. And I, I, I appreciate that women can be in the workforce and I think they should totally be allowed to be in the workforce and do whatever they want. I'm like, I'm totally about that. But at the same time, they vilified being a mom. And they've they've adopted this standard that uh, being a parent is less than and not actually not self-actualizing and it's not good enough. And, you know, housewives are pathetic. And if you really, you know, if you really want to be productive, be a lawyer. Um, and your own even had this thing where, like, you know, you're not a man if you don't want a strong career minded woman, which is just bullshit. Like, what if? You find a strong, smart woman who wants to be a good mom. Like there's value in that, and we can't well, dismiss that. I think I and, think you're I think you're strawmanning him a little bit there. I don't think he said okay, maybe career-minded woman, strong woman. A strong woman could also be one who wants to stay home and raise kids. Um, he he specifically mentioned career and being self-sufficient. Well, like, not, not for for a man not to be intimidated by a woman who has career aspirations. Um, sure, if a man, that, if, a man, if a man is intimidated by that, I do think it's a sign of 
of weakness. Sure, but but being intimidated by and wanting to start a family with are two different things. Like you can say, I'm this woman's great. I'm not intimidated by her, but for my family, I want to find someone who either will let me stay home or she's going to stay home. Like we need to have we need to have an investment in our children. And that's a rational that like that's that's not a fear. Like it's belittling to say to assume that that only comes from some sort of wimpy uh, misogyny that but it's coming it's it's coming from an appeal to an uh, authority and an appeal to tradition which are not arguments i think an objectivist can make the same claim yes uh look if you want to be a parent you have to be engaged one of the tragedies of giving up more and more of your life to the government is you're giving up your moral agency which is where your dignity lies so the more things you want the government to do for you, the more you're saying, I divorce myself from these aspects of my life. And now that includes sending your kid to a state institution for eight or nine hours a day where you don't have to think about what it is they're being taught at all. And that's probably the most dangerous place of all for a kid to be because they're at their most vulnerable. And an objectivist would would make the same claim that you, if, it, if parenting is a real value to you, that means you take moral control over over every aspect of parenting, including overseeing the child's education, if it means something to you. Now, it's a terrible, delicate balancing act that's difficult to do, and not a lot of people can do it. Um, and that's what makes, I think, the modern time, the low birth rate, the fact that people are self-actualizing first before you know, or at least achieving career goals and personal goals before they become parents. I think that's great. I think that's fantastic. But the idea, the ideas of family are not, it's, it's not being preached from that side so much as, well, it's just, it's optimal and it's rational. It's being, it's being preached as a traditional institution that should be there because it's been there for a long time and it's been there a long time because it works. Now, with respect to Christianity, there's a complex, there's a constellation of reasons why Christianity has been around for a while, why, why, how it developed from a, a Judean sect that, you know, an obscure Judean sect to this massive thing over 400 years. Um, a lot of that was political, you know, and yes, um, you know, it's possible for very powerful leaders to to in, to to ingrain a particular way of thinking and looking at the world into a, a culture, and then it becomes the culture. It becomes a part of the culture that right. you know, and then spreads uh, it spreads to other cultures and becomes a part of those cultures. And we know we know that part of the imperialist uh, European imperialist movement out into the other continents in the in in the Western Hemisphere and in Africa, in part, were missionary. Were, were missionary, um, um, what, what is it like, uh, mission, were mi- mi- missions, uh, you know, missions, to, right, to, yeah. to proselytize Quests, to people, whatever. yeah, to plant the flag, the flag and the cross simultaneously, um, and establish, uh, Christian nations throughout the world. Um, that's not, I mean, you, you can't say that it just spread because it's good. It spread because, you know, it, it spread for the same reason Islam spread. It was, Ruthless, imperialistic, violent when it had to be, um, 
and allied itself with political powers wherever it was and became a, uh, a partner to kings and despots everywhere. So, I mean, would it have spread in a marketplace of ideas? I don't, maybe not. I don't, I don't yeah. know. It's a fantastical story. It's a silly story. If you really start thinking about how silly it is. Um, sure. I'm talking about sure. Christianity, the Christian story, not, not God. God's, God's an interesting story and certainly something that, you know, we can think about, you know, prime movers and the origins of the universe are really heady things to try to contemplate. Um, but I don't think a silly story um, it's, it's so palpably immoral on so many levels gets real purchase <laughs> without guns and knives and swords and shackles and burnings at the stake and hangings and all the other things that they had to do to get that ascendancy. All right. I, I, I will concede that. And I think that's a fair argument. I guess my pushback isn't really on on. I'm not saying we should look at the traditions and say, well, they must have worked. Um, so we should respect them. Uh, what I'm saying is I see a lot of throwing them out without trying to look at to see if there's a rational reason why they might, whether there's some truth in them, right? So I don't see, like, I, I don't see objectivists say, and I, I didn't, you know, I don't see objectivists say, well, this is a bad reason for saying A, B, and C or whatever. It's a bad reason. There's, there's bad reasons for this, but there's a grain of truth here. It does kind of matter, for example, two-parent homes do kind of matter. That's statistically provable. We know that, like, fatherlessness, for example, is uh, correlated to a whole bunch of dysfunction, including uh, criminal dysfunction, economic dysfunction. Like, it's correlated to a lot. So there is, it, it seems like the the, there's a kind of reactionary, uh, there's a kind of reactionism, reactionaryism, I don't know if that's a word. There's, so there's a reactionary uh, response by a lot of objectivists, because they're atheists, who look at that and they look at a any particular traditional thing and they just throw it out and say the Christians are idiots, that's a dumb thing, they must be a bunch of misogynists. I'm not going to try and peel this apart and see if there's actually anything that was kind of working here and a rational reason for it. I'm not even going to ask myself the question. Um, and that's what it seems to me is happening uh, with some of this stuff, right? Immigration is is another example of, of less Christian, but more um, just a, a mischaracterization of conservative positions, right? You'll, you'll have you'll have objectivists say, well, like, oh, well, immigrants are great, um, which is fine, true, right? I'm married to an immigrant. It's like, immigrants are great. Like, it's only xenophobia that would make people not want immigration. Well, that's not true for a large percentage of the conservatives. They, they have specific concerns that are grounded in reality. Now, many no, of those well, concerns- I, I would disagree. Okay, go ahead. I, maybe I cut you I, off before the- punishment. Well, actually, many of those concerns are related to a different problem. And the answer can be, well, so, let's solve this other problem. The underlying problem you're talking about is not immigration. It's uh, the welfare state, or it's, you know, like subsidies that that might happen, like a, a lot of there's, there's a lot of concern, you know, and, you know, some of that's true, some of it's not some of it's overblown. I'm not I'm not saying all the arguments are correct for that. But, you know, so that's a concern. And, and frankly, I think a lot of conservatives are afraid, rightly so, that we are more of a democracy and less of a constitutional republic and more people voting 
where there's no constraints on protecting individual rights means you will lose the Second Amendment, you will lose the First Amendment, like you'll lose those things. And they're concerned about that. And when so when they say they're concerned about the cult- culture, they're not talking about they're concerned about brown people or food that they don't like or or whatever. They're concerned that the that subsi- like the government subsidizing mass immigration from third world countries will result eventually in a voter block that will inevitably undo the protection of individual rights. Not all conservatives, some of them I'm sure are xenophobes, but again, I don't see objectivists even try and look at that nuance. I just see it dismissed as like, that's a bunch of, you know, slack jawed xenophobia. Now, yeah, I mean, I think primarily the conservatives try to to pass off the lie that immigration takes jobs away from Americans and there's an intense nationalism on their part, economically speaking, which which is xenophobic in nature because it's a lie that immigrants take away jobs from Americans. Right. That I agree. So, so they're definitely capitalizing on people's in, maybe inherent, I don't know, fear of the other and scapegoating of the other, which is a, a convenient political tool. Um, the, 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 the idea of the demographics shifting um, I don't I, is true. I, I do think that, but I don't think that, let me say this, I don't think that the right frames their argument correctly, in part because the left dictates the moral tenor of the debate, um, and they just call them racist or xenophobic, um, as apparently some objectivists do. I haven't heard this, but uh, just by bringing this notion up, but the fact of the matter is that um, multiculturalism has been sort of the 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 cause du jour. The the idea of assimilation is offensive now to people on the left. And if it, it, I haven't heard anybody on the right make the distinction between uh, between the lack of assimilation and what they are assimilating to, it's like. It, they're, they're, they, they come at it almost from the same perspective as the left, which is to say, you know, um, how can I say this? They're making it a color issue as opposed to, well, no, assimilation means adopting a particular set of ideas and an outlook about the way the government works and the, your relationship to the government. And if you want to come here from Central or South America and bring with you some version of uh, South American uh, plutocracy or some 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 corruption, and that's what your notion of government is. Then kindly don't vote. <laughs> um, right. And, it, and it's true if these people are, uh, you know, and and if there's no checks on, and I think there should be. Look, but I have a weird. I don't know if I, I have a weird uh, sense of what voting is. I don't consider voting a right. It's it, the more democratic. Right. The more democratic we become, the more they, the more the the message. It's pushed out there that voting is a right. No, my life is a right. My right to my property is a right that cannot be deprived of me. But not everyone can vote. You know, there are requirements that 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 you have to meet in order to 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 uh, to exercise the franchise. Um, and I, I and I think there should be more. I don't think that even being born here should give you a right to vote. I think you have to 
know civics, know what the purpose and end of our government is, know what the branches mean, know the Constitution, and, and your vote should be an act of defense against the growth of government. Um, that is, anything else is, is just, uh, it's just political theater for the sake of growing a bigger political class. So I like the, the, the Republicans just do it so tepidly. They, they just do it so fearfully. Yes, we're putting these rational laws in place in the states uh, and all the Democrats have to scream is this voter repression and the, the Republicans sort of cringe. Oh, please don't say that about us. Um, right. Yeah, but if you can't get a fucking ID, um, it, you know, if you don't have the resources or the brain power to get a minimum amount of identification so that your vote can be uh, um, uh, verified, then you have no business voting. A verified vote is a real vote. That's a vote. Yeah. No, I've always thought that uh, it's annoying because so many things involving the government are quite complex. Um, so why isn't voting something that you need to register for a year in advance and it needs to be a complex process? Because that would weed out a lot of people who don't care and are uninformed and whatever. Just just that one little thing. You actually don't want people driving up on the day they of the election saying, hey, I think I'll vote now. Uh, you well, kind of want only, it to be not a little only bit that, difficult. And not, not only that, the bigger the state gets, the more people are under its umbrella, the more people are dependent upon it. Now you have people, the constituency, voting themselves funds. Right. Uh, you well, know, you and, you and I have vote. talked about my idea about that, but yes. <laughs> right. And we're voting, voting you and I the responsibility of paying them funds. Right. Which, which I think uh, is, is a practice we could do away with. So let me ask you this, uh, since you just brought up the, you know, you and I, they're voting again, you know, to have us fund them. So there's this country's politics has kind of devolved to a, a, a fight over who gets to hold the gun at the ballot box. Right. I mean, that's for most issues. That's what it what it boils down to. Are you concerned that if we defeat somehow uh, the radical leftist ideology, which I'm not sure will, I think it's just going to probably take over personally, and, and that's going to be the end of the United States as we know it. But, uh, wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually, I want to defend the ideas of the United States, but I don't really particularly care about the territory and the, and the particular instant instance of the United States right now. Um, okay. so, but let, let's assume that I'm wrong. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. Right. Let's assume that I'm wrong and the radical left gets defeated um, and the gun gets wrestled from their hands. If if we've allied ourselves with if Christians are part of that battle, are you concerned that they just pick the gun up? Because you and I are fighting for like, hey, let's make the gun a lot smaller and not be allowed to point it at a whole bunch of people. Uh, and right now it's this giant gun that's getting pointed around that the left controls and we kind of. We've got conservatives fighting against the left as well. Maybe not super well, but sometimes they do a decent job. If we wrestle the power away from the left, it's just going to be used by the right. And I don't know that that's a better situation that we're in. Right. It hasn't been a better situation. There's 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 very little improvement. They can point to upticks in, in, uh, in uh, employment and some other specific areas where, you know, 
the the pittance of uh, of a deregulation has created a, a, a nice pocket of economic activity, but for the most part, they're spending more money, um, devaluing our labor more, hurting us more down the road, um, and and, uh, and nationalistic policies uh, are not the solution to competition with China um, at all. Right. So I, I don't, and they're obsessed with China, um, obsessed. And uh, it's like, you know, it's like this is the new boogeyman. And I, I remember reading a statistic when far long after the Cold War was over that uh, that the, uh, the Soviet Union never reached like 19 percent of our economy. And they, they were just such a they were they weren't even a paper bear. They were not even they were a they were a cub. They were they were just not They're even a, a homeopathic enemy. <laughs> they were. Yeah, they were nothing. <laughs> And Rand said it. She said it in the Committee on Un-American Activities. She's like, "What are you afraid of? You know, they'll be like if one single rocket gets off a launch pad, it'll be uh, it'll be luck. Um, they're completely incompetent, and and of course they were. And now the Chinese have a slightly different. You know, they have more of a fascist regime and a corporatist yeah. mar marriage with corporations, which makes them." certainly more dangerous, but the more authoritarian they get, the less we have to fucking worry about them in, in a lot of ways, because authoritarianism cuts the brain off. Um, it makes them incapable of innovating. And, and there's only so many people you can steal from. I mean, in, in, embedded in tyranny are the seeds of its own defeat. And I think the same goes for the same goes for the left embedded in the left's ideology right now is a Jacobin, chaotic, uh, strident moralism that will end up consuming its own. Um, yeah, the, I, I agree with you. But the question that I always ask is like, yeah, but what damage do they do before they kill themselves? Right. right? And I think um, of that, too. Like, how many people can they take down? How much can they burn down? Well, you know, they'll burn down as much as we let them. And there's going to be a point at which the tolerance is going to end. And and already people are seeing how insane these ideas are when taken to their most consistent ends. And they're fighting back. And one or two corporations have started to fight back. Um, you know, eventually the bigger ones will start to get, I think, a clue. Uh, and if they don't, then the competitors who do understand the lay of the land will start to beat them in the marketplace and and that will force them to reform or die i don't know i i, I the, so. the right the right has no solution though so if the baton passes we've already seen what happens yeah. the debt continues to rise as if it makes no difference interest rates are forced remain low so that people are spending and leveraging on credit which is creating bubbles and malinvestment all over the place is trillions upon trillions of dollars in personal and public debt um we're insolvent and there's no end in fucking sight and no political will on the part of the right to stop it none right well i'm i'm actually hoping that the disruption in the public republican party provides an opportunity for more for lack of a better term i'll just use it because it's a political term but more libertarian type attitudes <laughs> within the republicans to develop um because there is an old guard, which is the William F. Buckley conservative type Republicans in there, right? And uh, 
But there are, I think, different, there's more libertarian style Republicans now who maybe could take the reins if if this disruption in the Republican Party, you know, can be seized upon by the right ideas. I don't see that happening. I mean, that, that, that might happen, but then Trump is going to come in on his egomaniacal white horse in a third party guise, split the ticket and drive the Democrats in. If the Democrats haven't passed all of their legislation that solidifies, solidifies their power <laughs> now, which is it's possible. I was going to say, I'm not sure we'll ever see another Republican. I don't uh, hmm. because they're going to they're going to make they'll try and make D.C. a state. They'll try and make Puerto Rico a state. They'll try and pass everything they can to solidify their power, as you're saying. And like, it's not. I think the I good news, though, I think the good news is that we live in a federalist system and there are people in individual states are, are voting with their feet. Um, and lots of people are moving to Texas, Tennessee, Florida, yep. Montana. Um, these people, these there's literal floods of humanity uh, flowing into these states. And just for the sake of pure survival, some of these blue states are going to have to start uh, changing the way they do things. I mean, even Cuomo, the, probably one of the most corrupt and disgusting human beings alive, was was begging New Yorkers to come back. He said, I'd buy you a dinner and drinks if you just come back. Um, Lower my taxes and I'll consider it. Right. Now, unfortunately, yeah. some of these people from blue states go to the red states and then promptly vote in the programs that they were running away right. from. They, they don't make the integration that what they're running from was their their fault. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I think people are voting with their feet. I certainly am going to leave California. It's my home. I was I was born and raised in California. My family's there. I want to leave. I want to leave yeah. because it's untenable. So um, we have that, and we have before it all crumbles, before before the possibility of the left or the right becoming this strong central power that you know uh, just turns against everyone. We have the option of secession on the table. I don't think it was solved during the Civil War. And I'm sort of with the libertarians in the sense that I think that is a legitimate option to exit a union. Even if four or five big states say, I've had enough, um, this is enough, I'm done. Um, have your state the way you want it. Um, we're going to have our state the way we want it. No hard feelings, no harm, no foul. Um, That's what I'm I, hoping for. <laughs> I think that I think I think something like that would happen. I know it's huge, um, but I think something like that would happen before we experience, you know, a potential fascist, completely outwardly fascist regime. I hope so. And I think, you know, one one grain of hope that I have is if a state were to do that right now. So I'm in California as well. I want to move. Uh, I've, there's some reasons I can't right now, but I'm also just kind of looking around going, well, is it Texas? Is it Florida? Is it New Hampshire's got the free state project, but I don't really like that it's surrounded by everyone that it's surrounded by. You know, there's Montana, like there are other states and I'm looking around and I'm not exactly sure where to go. But uh, if a state, it doesn't matter. It could be almost like any of those states. If they successfully seceded on the and said we're doing it because we want smaller government and more freedom like if that was their that was their general the gist of where they're going i think me and a lot of other people would just say great that's where i'm going 
that's it's settled. That's the place I'm going. And I think a lot of the authoritarian leftists in those states would freak out and move back to California or wherever. Um, really? I don't I think they know on some level how dangerous they are. You think they want to. I mean, I guess if they're in the political class, they're going to be flying above all the rabble and taxi cabbing through it um, yep. and not really experiencing how awful it is. Uh, so maybe they would go back to California, but I see no benefit to that. I can't see yeah. them. A Californian who moves to Texas and then Texas secedes. I can't see the Californian saying, yeah, I'm cool with being in not in the United States anymore. <laughs> Whereas I, a lot of Texans would be like, yeah, I'm cool with just being Texas. That's fine with me. Yeah, I mean, Texas was just Texas, you know, at one time. So for a, for a while. Yeah. Yeah. They're so very they, good at seceding and fighting wars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's it's sort of in their wheelhouse. But I, I suspect that if Texas had the balls to do something like that, there would be a number of other states that would follow suit one on top of the other. Who was the first to do it during the during the Civil War it was North Carolina. Right. It was the first. to so, secede, yeah. And then it was followed upon by all the other states uh, shortly thereafter for all the wrong reasons, of course. But, hey, you can have a secession for the right reasons. Right. Right. Um, all right. Well, but by, by the way, just something that if we're going to talk about political unrest, this conversation kind of got political, but that's fine. If we're going to talk about political unrest, I was reading something that I found kind of an interesting point. Um, yesterday, I was reading um, the ancient regime and the revolution by de Tocqueville about the French Revolution, and he was kind of analyzing what was happening beforehand, and he he made an interesting point, which is kind of intuitive, but I hadn't I hadn't added one and one and gotten two out of this, and he did. Um, he made this point that, well, as people give uh, as as a state becomes less of a sovereign and more of a uh, what was the word he used? I don't remember the exact word, but like more of a benefactor, like takes care of people, right? When it when it moves to being. Uh, I'm just kind of doing the laws to like my job is to take care of the poor and to take care of this. When the state becomes your nanny state, for lack of a better term, um, a lot of people like that. A lot of the a lot of the uh, people are like, "Yay, we're being taken care of," and they and that that all goes well at first. But um, one thing that happens is when you lose, when when they give up the responsibility for their own lives. They also will end up placing blame at the feet of the state for when things don't go well. And eventually, since that doesn't work, since eventually the system will, will break down, when things go horribly well, it's revolution time. Like, because they don't have any, they don't feel any sense of personal responsibility anymore. It's all the nanny state's fault. So when things get bad enough, it's the state's fault. And the state needs to be absolutely dismantled. Um, and I think about that sometimes as, you know, it, we have, I think, over somewhere around half the population doesn't pay any taxes or like a large percentage gets money from the federal government. You know, are we how close are we to that? I don't know the answer. I'm just throwing it out. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. Um, I mean, I think financial analysts have been thinking we're close to hyperinflation every year. There's supposed to be a collapse every <laughs> five years. And somehow we've been able to evade it. That's a Euron Brook question. He knows so much more about finances and and why we're able to push that uh, catastrophe, that impending catastrophe down the road, and, uh, and, and, and how we can push, you know, 
the, the inevitable crush of a coming revolution, I don't know either. Um, certainly one side wants it right now. Um, the left wants it desperately. Yep. Um, and the right can't come back with, let's hold on to something. They have to come back with something much firmer than that, much, much more um, energizing than let's hold on to something. Um, they have no vision, the right. They have no... They have no vision other than what's been before. Right. And what you need is somebody who is, can articulate the vision of the future with an improvement on things from the past, not burning it down, but an, a, a, a greater articulation of the concept of right and individualism, which Rand did, but I think some objectivist thinkers are doing it even even better now. Yeah. So let me let me ask you, uh, kind of. I know we've meandered a lot, but I, I have. If you were gonna, if you're talking to a Christian who wants to fight social justice, um, and is worried about the direction of the country, so I'm talking about a Christian who embraces individual rights. Um, mm -hmm. What would you? Would you try and argue about the actual origin of rights or would you just leave it at that, be thankful that they're starting with individual rights and go on your way? It depends on how much time I have with the Christian. Um, <laughs> if, if a Christian is just talking about, let's say, natural right, right I guess that's how they would phrase it. Um, I, I did actually tweet back to Justin Amash when he wrote something about uh, natural rights. Um, what did he say? He, he wrote something about natural rights and that they're not up for approval. I, f I forget the exact statement that he used, but I shot back something at him that, um, uh, or I think he said they come from nature and I'm like, no, they don't. Rights don't come from nature. And that's, I think that's part of the anarchist's flaw is that they think rights come from nature um they don't Where do you think they come from well they come from our our assessment of our nature and and the requirements for our life in a social context so we see what human beings are we we um we see what they need to what they need to do to live and we apply that to a social context and understand that in order to think and act and combine elements to create new things and the process of productivity, human beings need to be free to think and to act on their thoughts. And we call that social institution liberty. But we so it, I completely agree with that. I just paraphrase that as nature when um, if I was on Twitter. Yeah, but but <laughs> that's a bad paraphrase phrasing. I guess. I, well, I think I think it is because it's saying it's inherent. And it's not inherent in it's what's what we have is a rational faculty and free will. Those are the those are the faculties that make liberty the only possible social condition that we can live under in, right. in order to thrive. There's not even a choice. There's not there's no, de there's no gradation of it. It has to be complete freedom. Uh, or if it's not, you know, the, the paradox undoes itself until there's no more liberty at all. So. Um, yeah, it's an analysis. It's a tool, right? You see, you need to put this nail in the, the wood. And so you invent a hammer to do it for you. Um, likewise, we see human beings behave in the environment a certain way. 
we see what can stop them from behaving a certain way and from living in a social context, and we apply this concept of liberty to that, and it becomes a blanket rule for all of us. Leave your fellow man alone, let him be. And, right, uh, it, right? and so we restrain it. Everybody is, society, the big group is restrained from hurting you, the, the individual, um, because that's how we can think and innovate and thrive and spiral knowledge and progress through the roof. Uh, any other condition is, uh, is eventually a, ret a retrogression. Right. Well, that, that I'm all in agreement with. I, I yeah. guess I'm just, uh, I guess the paraphrasing of nature, I think of that, that entire argument you just made and I say, well, it's nature looked at rationally with a conclusion that there is no other conclusion from nature to draw. So nature, <laughs> but right. I get but it. In, I but get instead it. of the inherency thing, I, I just think that the inherency thing, and I could be wrong. I'm just talking out my ass. No, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm just sort of talking off the cuff. Um, it seems like saying rights are inherent. It leaves room for skeptics to talk shit, you know, to disprove that. If that right. were so, then why is this? If, if it sounds ethics, mystic, mystical a little bit, right? It is. It, well, it is mystical. Because it comes from we are endowed right. by our creator with certain unalienable rights, but you're not. Right. You are endowed with a rational faculty, which is our responsibility to recognize in the proper social system, recognizes that and does something about it. Right. And they arise. I mean, yeah, I think you just mentioned this, but rights are only relevant as a concept in a social situation. They're not when right. you're on a desert island by yourself. There's no there is no rights and there's no concept of rights and there's no need for a concept of rights. That's right. Um, so, yeah. All right. And if they were inherent, wouldn't they be there? <laughs> right. You would just have them with you. <laughs> right. 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 You can't you can't point to them. You can't pull them out of your ass and say, here's my rights. Yeah. So a better paraphrase would be rights arise from the nature of man, which is that's, that's yeah, I think so. Rights arise from the nature of man. They're a recognition of the nature of man. Yeah, there's a better one. Yeah, the recognition of the nature of man. OK, I'm not sure if I, I, I kind of feel like I went into this conversation with some questions about religion. I guess I've kind of had them answered um, in that. Uh, you you would say that really it's still necessary to be pushing back on religion at least not as maybe a primary goal of like this is why you know the number one thing to fight but as uh not letting them get away with even saying things like natural rights um they're not our friend uh, they're not the main enemy right now. The skeptics, the radical skeptics are the, the ones to really right. think about. Um, but they are a force to be reckoned with for lots of reasons. I mean, they've co-opt history in their own way, too. If I were to go to Hillsdale College, I would get a whole curriculum of God-centered uh, origins to our the founding of our country, which I would write. I would be chafing at the the bit about and fighting with my professors all the time about. Right. Um, but they're they're each co-opting history in their in their own way. The radical skeptics in their way to burn it all down and to replace it with something closer to their Marxist utopia. And the 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 right is trying to establish the false premise that we were a Christian nation raised on Christian values and that this thing that we call 
the representative republic came out of Christ and not enlightenment values and secularism, and they want to create their own city on the hill. Fuck them both. So let me – well, now – so now I'm going to ask about the Founding Fathers a little bit. I always view the Founding Fathers as well – I mean, I know there's an argument that <coughs> Jefferson was a deist, um, but they were – they were Christian in their religion, like because everyone was basically at the time there, right? They were Christian in their religion. So naturally their their interpretation of Christianity colored their uh, colored their definition of of the United States as they wrote it down and colored their ideas around the United States. Like John Locke was influential, not that he's founding father, obviously, but John Locke, an influential writer, but Christian, right? And made that natural rights argument that you're talking about, which I I agree is incorrect. But um, I mean, there is some truth to the fact that like, well, clearly Christian values were part of the founding of the nation. I would argue they're not the essential thing that sets America apart philosophically, but they are part of it. I can't no? think of, I cannot, I mean, aside from me mentioning, the, you know, the fact that Christ changed the relationship between human beings and, and God in, in, to a more personal type of relationship, I can't think of anything explicitly Christian in the Declaration of Independence. Can you? Other than no, the- I mean, I, that's actually what I'm talking about, though. That that's the That's the thing that I'm talking about is this kind of interpretation of christianity as as individualist well i mean i think i think i think i think they were men of their times and to to that extent christianity was a dominant ethics and i and i think they understood that free men had to be guided by values they had to be guided by morality and at the time you know there was probably stoicism and christianity and not a whole lot more um And I even think uh, Jefferson had a, a great deal of sympathy for um, for Christian ethics. He wrote a kind of rational Bible where he just distilled the teachings of Jesus out of it without all the mystical stuff. Um, so they that that was in part their orientation, but uh, or their moral, their personal moral or moral orientation. But I I really believe that their the way they structured the state was intensely secular and deliberately avoided um, any connection with with Christianity, in, in part because of their own origins, you know, right. they, in, in part because of the, the, the nature of the church in England and the nature of its control over the population and and in its uh, power dynamics with the leaders. I think they wanted to um, start something different and new. And so I think it was a wholly secular movement. Even if even if certain of the founding fathers were animated personally by Christianity, they wanted a secular government that was philosophical and rational in nature. Johnny. Well, I think that that I that's clear, I think, because they didn't every other government would have written in some tie to religion in their founding documents and they didn't. And most um, and look, if you look at is Muslim countries, um, many of Jordan, I think I think I read Jordan's constitution. It's a it's a monarchy, right? But the the predominant the predominant ethics throughout the the constitution is Islamic. It's very much wedded to their religious uh, ideas, and um, 
And also there's tons of clauses in the Constitution that, you know, actually say if the government permits, if, you know, you have this right, provided the government permits it. <laughs> right. Just like having no Constitution at all. But it's definitely it's this definitely saturated with religious uh, with religious guideposts. And ours is not. And I don't think there's God in our Constitution at all. No, I don't think so. And and I think a lot of people I mean, there was a push. Was it in the 50s? I guess, to start inserting God, like you had the Pledge of Allegiance, you started adding, I don't know when In God We Trust started to come on coins, that might have been before that, but uh, that stuff wasn't part of the early state, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, maybe what I'm getting out of this conversation is that I've, I've done a, I went from like a evangelical atheist, and maybe I've kind of swung back to giving Christianity a little bit more credit than to do <laughs> and maybe i'll start swinging back towards trying to find the the right amount of i think um, yeah, i think I, I i don't think you should dismiss it i just don't think they're allies i mean i in the long run their concepts are going to undo them just like they have the last hundred years right um but you know i wouldn't be i don't proselytize against christians i i see the value of what they believe i I, I get it to each his yep. own. That's fine. I just I just don't think that they're going to make uh, permanent political allies. And I think that perhaps you risk contaminating your own sense of integrity by, you know, wedding yourself to them when they're when their ends are very different from yours. Yeah, I guess I guess what I'm thinking here is the Christians who have the individual rights, um, they think they, like that's their their ethic. Um I look out at the United States and I see, well, <laughs> of the people who even like the phrase individual rights and think it means something and like <laughs> want to move forward with it, a large percentage of those are Christian. And the atheists who like that are a tiny minority. And it seems like if we could convince them to really think about the origin of individual rights, I have a sense that a lot of Christians are holding on to Christianity because they, because of, it's a backwards belief. They want individual rights. They want limited government. They they have a feeling that that's correct. They know individual rights are important. And they think that Christianity is the only way to justify them. And so it's hard to let go of that because they're scared that if they do that, they've been taught that Marxism is their atheist uh, political well, they, system. They, so. yeah, they, they don't understand. They don't understand secular morality. And, and this is something that Sam Harris even talked about. He's been trying to establish a secular morality. He's he's silly. He, think, he thinks it hasn't been done already by Rand. Um, but he argues with academic scientists all the time about the the relevance of uh, reason and, and um, the connection between reason and morality. And nobody in the academic world wants to pick it up. Now, at the same time, he's denying free will, which is a paradox. He doesn't seem to be able to marry, but... Right. Um, the, the secular humanists are are just as skeptical about uh, secular morality uh, as the uh, deists are and as the Christians are. They they they're less skeptical. You know, so where the Christians maybe put God over them and Jesus and the angels and, and stuff, uh, the uh, the secularists put Platonic philosopher kings up there who they think you know know more than us 
and can direct us and that we just simply have to obey. But they're the same. They're the same. Yeah. yeah. So why would I well, want to Well, maybe, maybe even why? the Christians are better because, uh, as my friend said, it's better to believe in a sky god than a man god, but or whatever. Right. <laughs> in, a sense, sure. in a sense, it, in a sense, it is better in that, you know, they still believe that you are a moral agent here on Earth. Um, but I still think that the paradox of, of this otherism, this belief that you're that you have to obey and that moral yeah. agency comes from obeying an authority higher than you. That's a dangerous precedent, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's psychologically difficult to let go of that because once you once you decide that actually it's my own responsibility to determine uh, my purpose, that can be very scary for a lot of people. I think it is scary. Um, and and also, look, you, you you resolve yourself to the to the idea that there's no instantaneous answers to things, which is also scary. Yeah, you have to you have to work your way through things. You, you know, things aren't just answers aren't just going to fall in in your lap. And, you know, what what big state and big religion offers you are solutions with very little work. They offer utopian ideals with very little work. They offer you a universe that doesn't exist. Um, all you have to do is have faith in it. So I wouldn't align myself with with the, the Christians because they believe those things. You know, yeah, they have different language, different usages and different means of getting to that utopia. But they still want that utopia. That makes sense. Well, maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll make a, a more concerted effort to really flesh out the secular origins of individual rights for when I'm talking to Christians, so that they feel yeah. like there is a way to jump ship and stay afloat. I think that's true. I think that's good. I think they could use that. We all could. If you can come up with a better way of saying it than me, let me know. Oh, I don't know if it'd be better. It would just be the same thing that you and Rand said, basically, but. You know, the more it can be repeated and, and in different ways, the better, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I found my own spin on it because I feel like I uh, I digested her concepts and now they're mine. You know what I mean? So Right, yeah. No, I, I feel say, the same way about it. Yeah. Yeah, so I say it my way and you may say it in a distinctly different way than me. And that way is the combination to lots of people's hearts. Yeah, I don't know. that's a good way to look at it. Huh. Dude, this has been super interesting and fun. I don't know what my goal was, but I was basically just to have this conversation and, and I really respect your, your mind and, um, your, your strict consistency with re like your dedication to reason and like trying to <clears throat> really be as, as rational as possible and think this stuff through and, um, no subject being taboo and, uh, not really, you know, the conversation never gets down to, well, I just think that, right, or just believe it or whatever. It's really, it's really good. I appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, 
and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please direct any appeals to our internal review board, at dev null. Please note that Seppaku, while encouraged, does not guarantee absolution. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Thank you for participating in our longitudinal study of new and exciting messenger RNA gene therapy techniques. Please make a note of any abnormal growths, loss of vision, difficulty breathing, or death. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake. <laughs>